Bye. Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Good morning. We are very glad that you have joined us today. We have a very different show for you today on a really important topic. We are always talking about helping you thrive, but let's talk today about when you may not be thriving. In fact, when you may have a terminal illness or know someone you love who does. And we're going today to talk today with Dr. Michael Strauss about medical aid in dying, something that is already in place in laws in Oregon, Washington, California, Colorado, Vermont, District of Columbia, Hawaii, and Montana. And Michael's working with the Maryland end-of-life options movement. And we're going to talk today very candidly about why this is important, what it means to you, the choices involved, and the credible reasons that this exists and should be talked about. So, Michael, we are most welcoming to you this morning. Thank you for coming on and talking about this difficult topic. So delighted to be with you. It's a topic about which I feel quite passionate, so thank you for doing this. You're welcome. You and I spoke before about this uh, end-of-life option going on in, here in Maryland, and it is going on across the country as well. I think it's important for people to understand you as a physician, how you first became interested in this topic, and then became very passionate about having options. Sure. Well, there's really two parts to my passion about First, as a general internist and physician who's taken care of many patients at the ends of their lives, I did see a lot of suffering, um, uh, most of which I, as a physician, or my colleagues could address, but sometimes we couldn't. Um, but the second part of why I have taken this on as uh, an important part of uh, what I do is about four years ago, I watched my then 90-year-old mother die a miserable last six weeks of her life, begging for medical aid and dying, basically. And she knew about it in other states. It was not here in Maryland. And that's what I decided I'd spend a lot of my time trying to get it passed here. But I also work with physicians in other states as well. I think it's very difficult to watch someone you love suffer and go through pain, or not wish to be here, or to be cognizant and not be able to have control. I think those are some of the issues that arise when people are talking about having end-of-life options. And we're very aware, and you and I have had this discussion as well, that this choice is not for everyone. But what you're talking about is making it legal for it to be a choice. Can you talk about why it is important that it be a legal, on-the-books law for protection of both physicians, the patient, the family members, and and why that's so crucial? Right. So 
you know, some of this has gone on for decades or even centuries where physicians or family members might help someone near death um, in ways that turns out may speed their death. Uh, but what, what got started in Oregon 20 years ago is now, in, as you described, authorized in eight states, is a process where we make sure that the individual who wants to participate in such a program qualifies for and has a certain set of, you know, meets a certain set of criteria so that we protect those who are vulnerable, make sure that they are not uh, pushed to do something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And we protect healthcare providers. So there are physicians, there are hospitals, there are nursing homes who would like to help take care of the needs of their patients at the end of their lives. But there are laws on the books in many, many states that preclude assisting patients in ending their lives. So this movement tries to make it very visible so that patients and physicians and hospitals meet certain criteria and under those strict conditions allow patients to die in a way they want to die with, some call it, with dignity, in a place they want to do it, typically with family members around. So it's it permits individuals the the autonomy to do something, but also protects those who, individuals who don't want to do it, mm-hmm. and also the providers. Well, I think that's important. I, I know that there are many people who believe that you know we don't get to choose when we die, mostly in the faith-based community, and this is not going against what they wish to do. Because as I understand the proposed law, it is a choice if someone does this. I I think you and I have talked quite candidly that I don't believe this would be a choice for me. But I think that there were very good stories that you told me that gave an indication that sometimes this is vitally important because while I think for years, hospice and and other groups, um, physicians attending those who are dying, have often provided options, um, leaving enough medication, etc. That is a very difficult position for the family members to be in. And what this law does and proposes is that this is a personal choice of the patient. And it's very carefully orchestrated. Can you go through the protections that are built into this and the other laws that are on the books across the country? Sure. So, you know, I've been working in Maryland, but our law, Mm -hmm. like virtually all the other states that have the law currently or are considering it, they all are very closely modeled after what was passed in Oregon 20 years ago and has been uh, uh, legal in Oregon. So it starts out that a patient must be 18 years of age and a resident of the state where they're seeking this uh, care. They have to have a terminal illness. Uh, two physicians have to determine that they have this terminal illness, which is generally defined in these laws as reasonable medical judgment that a patient is likely to die within six months. Mm -hmm. 
the patient must have mental capacity. So this is not something that an individual with dementia or any other mentally incapacitating disease could have. So they have to have mental capacity at the time they enter the program. They must be capable of self-administering a drug. Mm-hmm. And that's very important. Some would like it so, well, all right, maybe they can't self-administer. But this is just one check on making sure that patients are not uh, coerced into doing something they wouldn't want to do. The patient then has to go in and request medical aid in dying from his or her physician, mm-hmm. has to do it three times, twice verbally, once in writing. There has to be at least a 15-day period between the first and the last time um, they request this. So it's not something that a patient could go into his or her doctor's office and say, give me the medication, I want to die today. Um, And there have to be witnesses, uh, two witnesses to this. So the attending physician, who's most important on the medical provider side, as I already said, has to determine that the patient has a terminal illness and has mental capacity and could um, self-administer. But also the patient has to inform the, excuse me, the physician has to inform the patient about a number of things. Um, that there are feasible alternatives, has to talk about palliative care and hospice, um, has to talk, determine, uh, I talked about um, where the patient would do this, not taking the medication in public, participating in a hospice program, um, and preparing an advanced directive. Then, lastly, there's another consulting physician, has to corroborate what the first physician did, And if there's any question about mental capacity, these physicians bring in a psychiatrist or psychologist to assess the mental capacity again. So those are the protections built in. Now, you bring up the advanced directive, and we're going on a break shortly, so we'll probably continue this answer after the break as well. But let's get started. Advanced directives are extremely important to convey the wishes of the patient. Let's say someone is going to do this. Do they also have to have it in their advanced directive for it to be followed? No, because at the time they go into this program, then uh, they have full mental capacity at that time. Mm-hmm. And they, regardless of what's in their advanced directive, um, they can enter this program. What's interesting is the flip side of that. If the patient has something like this, has decided to put it in his or her advanced directive, uh, and then at some point becomes mentally incapacitated, mm-hmm. they cannot, I'll repeat, cannot go into an aid and dying program. They have to have capacity at the end. The advanced directive really deals most importantly in some of the other issues about what kind of um, end-of-life care, if they're on a respirator, if they are unconscious, how aggressive treatment should be. Okay, so it does not have to go in the events directive. Correct. Um, And if they are mentally incapacitated, it wouldn't be enacted anyway. That's interesting to note um, because I I think that's, that's, that's one of the things we've talked about is conflicting in terms of if this is what you want but you are no longer capable of doing this, that's a... It's a sad situation, and it, it happens 
to many people and will continue to happen. But, you know, let, Michael, let's continue on um, after the break. I don't want to cut this one short because I think people need to understand more about their their conveying their wishes to the physicians involved and their family as well. And when we come back, I'd love to talk about when the family does not agree with what the patient is doing. I think that's a tough emotional one, but let's go hit it right on the head. We'll be back after these short messages. And we were talking today with Dr. Michael Strauss. Stay tuned. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Prevention Magazine urges us all to set smart goals for fitness. Their clever goal-setting plan is to set goals that are smart, S-M-A-R-T. S is for specific. Don't make your goals vague or too broad. M is for measurable, which could mean a goal weight, a goal body fat percentage, number of calories burned per day, number of miles walked, number of days per week you commit to exercise, etc. A is for attainable. A great way to make your goals attainable is to break them down into smaller achievable goals. R is for realistic. We gain confidence from goals that push us, but are also realistic. And T is for time bound. Give yourself a time to reach these goals. You are more apt to complete them if there are urgencies. Give it a deadline. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Michael Strauss today about the Maryland end-of-life options or what is known across the country as medical aid in dying. And these are very difficult decisions to make. And I'm curious if you could share some stories or um, some feedback on what occurs when this is happening in a family where, for example, children or parents may strongly disagree with this option. Does it change over time? Um, is there, are there discussions that can be held that will honor the person's wishes who is the one dying? Right. Well, it is a very uh, difficult time, obviously, for families. Mm-hmm. But what the data show us from the states that have had this is, first of all, uh, Individuals in these programs do not have to inform their family members. Oh, okay. But 95% of them do. So it's usually part of a family effort. Mm -hmm. And there's, um, uh, in most cases, at the end of life, for patients who go through the program and actually take the medication, I mean, one interesting point is, of the people who enter such programs, only about two-thirds of them actually take the medication. One-third never get to such a degree of suffering that they want to take it or mm-hmm. they just die suddenly or whatever. But of the two-thirds who take the medications, in the vast majority of cases, they're doing it with family members around them. And mm-hmm. it's a very... Uh, comfortable way for a patient 
to end his or her life. Uh, it, there's comfort in knowing family members are there. There's usually discussions about the joyous life the patient has had. Mm -hmm. And it's a much nicer way than, you know, we hear about stories. We've seen them and I've seen them, heard about them in testimony in our legislature where in states where this law is not available, patients have to choose to end their lives different ways, not mm -hmm. under the legal authority, with guns or other violence. And this is just so much a better way with family members to come to the end of a life where there is no cure and where uh, death is imminent. You know, I, I was thinking while you were talking that one of the hardest decisions to make is to the DNR, do not resuscitate. That everyone is pretty familiar with. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is sometimes the body just hangs on and on and on. And withholding nutrition or hydration can be just as grueling for a family to request. Yeah, that is very difficult. So here in Maryland, for example, uh, we do not have a law that allows medical aid in dying. Mm -hmm. And there are two ways where physicians and patients can agree that the, to a process that might enhance, uh, speed up the death process. Mm -hmm. One is withholding, uh, food and liquids. Mm -hmm. And it works. It usually takes about 10 to 14 days. Mm -hmm. The patient is uncomfortable, but in many cases, as you just alluded to, it's even more uncomfortable for the family members. Um, and they watch some suffering, continued suffering, and towards the end, the patient can't communicate very well. And it's just, you know, if it's the only option, some patients choose it, but it, in my mind, it's not a great option compared to medical aid and dying. The other way that sometimes death speeds up uh, is palliative sedation. Mm -hmm. That's a process where a patient is experiencing continued suffering and pain. Uh, traditional medications and treatments aren't working. So a physician aggressively treats the pain. The patient is unconscious. And every once in a while... As long as it wasn't the reason for the aggressive treatment, the patient does die because of the very aggressive treatment of pain. And medical aid in dying is an alternative to both of those processes. Now, when you're talking about aggressively treating the pain, are you talking about suppression of the breathing reflex? Well, that's the uh, side effect sometimes. So mm -hmm. if patients are experiencing so much pain that you, they're treated typically with narcotics and other medications that... Uh, treats the pain, makes them unconscious, but narcotics can uh, stop breathing. And that's the titration that the physician has to carefully uh, walk. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes it uh, inadvertently leads to a patient's death. This is a little off topic, but I think it does catch people's attention these days with the use of medical marijuana these days for pain and suffering, does that alter any of these, um, those who may be considering medical aid in dying, if they are able, I think medical marijuana is now legal in all 50 states, 
for medical care. But has that changed in terms of people wanting end-of-life options and having the legal out? That's a great question. I actually do not know the answer to that. I'm not expert on medical marijuana use at the end of life. So I really can't help you there, but it's a great set of questions. I could go figure that out at some point and get back. That's to fair. I think, I just think it's interesting because, you know, medicine evolves and holistic medicine evolves. I think chronic pain is um, a very large problem these days. And there are some different things that are always evolving that are better than what we used to call the morphine cocktail um, or the the ones that you talk about aggressively treating the pain so that breathing becomes difficult, cognition is gone. Um, And so I was just curious if that was part and parcel of some of these states. Talk about the fact of why the law is so important because people are seldom prosecuted for assisting whether it's spoken about or not, I shouldn't even say it word assisting, when people are present, when others are dying. Because I think the law tends to fall on the side of reducing the suffering of the person who is ill. And others will say, no, this is a slippery slope. If you start doing this, then people who have an acute condition will make this decision um, not as a chronic one. Has there been any cases of people applying to these programs where it was a depression decision, for example, as opposed to the chronic long-term certified illness? Well, that's an important assessment that the two physicians must do for any patient applying to such a program. So the patient has to have mental capacity. Some can be depressed. Probably virtually all of these patients, they know they have less than six months to live. Mm -hmm. 80% 80 of them have end-stage cancer. But there are some other disease processes as well. So they can be depressed. The question the physician has to ask is, is that depression severe enough to alter decision-making, to Mm -hmm. alter mental capacity? And... Physicians who care for patients at the end of their lives make these assessments all the time. Patients come in, they uh, they want to know, should I do another round of chemotherapy? Should I have this invasive surgery? Mm-hmm. Should I stop all this care? Well, those are important, you know, potentially life-ending decisions. Physicians have to assess, mm-hmm. Is this does this patient have the capacity to make this decision or should... If I'm not quite sure as a physician, should I ask an expert in this area? So physicians weigh depression. And in my experience and that of most of the physicians in the states who have, where these laws are, are present, they can make comfortably make those decisions in a small number of cases where there is the question you have just asked. Are they so depressed as to have lost mental capacity? They bring in a psychiatrist or psychologist to help make that assessment. Mm -hmm. I think one of the interesting points about this uh, medical aid in dying is that no one is required to participate. So if a physician has reservations about um, being party to any of this, they do not have to do it. 
um, other healthcare professionals who don't either believe in it for faith-based reasons or for other judgment calls. No one has to participate, which I think is very, very important because if this becomes something that people expect you to do, that's a problem. If you feel that you are going to be a burden to someone, that's something you hear a lot from those who are suffering. They see the suffering of their family members and they want to end that suffering both for themselves, but also for the family members. Can you address that a little bit? Yes. So um, a physician uh, when has to determine to make sure it is the patient, him or herself, mm-hmm. who is making the decision and is not being coerced by other family members. And, and that's, you know, that's probably the biggest issue that legislators deal with when they're thinking about passing such laws, making sure individuals are protected from being coerced. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is, as you described, nobody is required to participate. So that's the physician, the hospital, the nursing home, the pharmacist. Nobody must participate. And um, in experience in Oregon, where we have had the law for 20 years, um, first off, nobody's ever, there's been no documented case of coercion. Mm-hmm. But also, it's actually a small number of physicians who ultimately participate in this program. But there's a reason. So in Oregon and in other states that have such programs, there are a fair number of uh, hospital and chains and, and nursing homes and physician groups that are under the auspices of religious organizations, Mm -hmm. and they preclude their institution, their hospitals, or their physicians from participating. Other physicians just don't want to participate Mm -hmm. because they have, uh, you know, like like many in the public, have some or some in the public have an ethical concern. They don't want to participate. So that just means that only those providers participate. I do want to mention, though, that if you look at the data, and there are good data on this, that if you look at the general population across the country, 65 to 70% of Americans support medical aid in that. Um, we have good polls, national polls, uh, done on, you know, using accepted scientific methodology. Mm-hmm. In, a, in addition, a majority of physicians now support medical aid in dying. So we have uh, results of some national polls that show almost 60% of physicians support medical aid in dying. And we have state-specific polls where the state medical societies have done such surveys. And we have majorities of physicians in Maryland, Massachusetts, Colorado, and Arizona. Michael, we have to go on break right now. We will continue your answer after the break. No problem. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay tuned. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's merging. 
was growing up in Wisconsin, no matter how frigid it was outside, my Uncle Bob never seemed to get cold. He would come in from the snow wearing a t-shirt and remark how fresh it was outside. Then again, folks from Wisconsin are a pretty hearty bunch. As America's official dairy state, the cows have been known to give ice cream instead of milk when the temperatures drop. What's a word for a giant snowball that is formed by rolling a smaller one through a field of snow? Hug him a dog. Megla is an old Scots word meaning to trudge laboriously through the snow. And mufflements is an old Lancashire word for thick, warm, insulating clothes and gloves. Don't forget that you shouldn't try and send text messages if you're standing out in the cold. It can lead to typothermia. It's marching day. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. When it comes to your health, it's important to stay on top of your numbers. You need to know what your cholesterol numbers are, along with your blood sugar and blood pressure. Another number that's vital to be aware of is your waist circumference. Abdominal fat not only looks bad, but more importantly, it is criminal because it may release excess fatty acids or hormones that encourage inflammation, which are dangerous to your arteries. The fatty acids can contribute to insulin problems and plaque buildup. Keeping excess body fat at a minimum is important, but it's essential to keep fat off of your belly. Measure your waist circumference and be sure it's below 35 inches. Be diligent to exercise daily and eat good, healthy, low-fat foods to keep all excess body fat at bay. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion with Michael Strauss today about the Maryland end-of-life options and really known across the country as medical aid in dying. Michael, there's a third rail, and I'm going to touch it. There are those who would say aid in dying is suicide, and there's such a social stigma about suicide, and yet I think there is a strong distinction between end-stage-of-life cancer versus a suicide of someone who takes their life violently or peacefully with pills, etc., whatever the method may be. But there's a difference. Can you speak to those who would say, this is wrong, this is assisted suicide? Yes, and that's an excellent set of questions because it not only is it an issue, but at a gut level, it's what people worry about. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you how I think about it. So let's compare two situations. Uh, one of what we think of typically as suicide. Imagine a 16-year-old young woman who decides to end her life. And let's compare that in a number of ways to a 90-year-old woman with end-stage cancer. And I use that because that was my mother in her last six weeks of life. So the 16-year-old is experiencing what I'll call irrational thinking about a very treatable problem. She's depressed and wants to end her life. Mm-hmm. The 90-year-old, if you, interestingly enough, is thinking rationally, as was my mother at the end of her life, but she has an untreatable illness. Right. Cancer that can 
can no longer be cured. Now let's go back to the 16-year-old. What if she is successful? I've taken care of patients whose family members ended their lives, uh, as I've described, and it's terrible. Family members are distraught and emotionally traumatized. Whereas the 90-year-old woman who might have gone through a medical aid and dying program, as I've already described, typically brings the family together, allows them to deal with grief, and it is a very comfortable end of life. Let's go back to the 16-year-old. What if she does not succeed? What if she's saved from her suicide? Typically, she leads a long and productive life and is very thankful that people uh, averted her suicide. The 90-year-old, though, who is denied medical aid and dying, generally lives only briefly, often with horrific suffering, and is frustrated by a denial of her autonomy. Mm -hmm. So these are very different entities. And then, I think it's really important, last November, the American Association of Suicidology, it's a group of professionals who Mm -hmm. deal with suicide, put out a, a policy statement that said, Suicide is not the same as medical aid and dying, and we should think about them differently, and I do. Interesting that they formally put out a statement, because I think this is one of the visceral issues with this topic, is that uh, especially those of certain faiths, um, certain just family assumptions about who, who has the right to end their lives, um, but suicide is a loaded word in our culture. And as we know, what you just described are two very different scenarios. But it's also a case of choices. And I think that's what's very important here. This is not, you know, a so-called death panel that makes the choice for you. This is a person who is making a personal choice. Am I correct? You are absolutely correct. And, you know, one of the attributes of our law here, uh, the proposed law here in Maryland is, uh, with all the other protections I've talked about, I actually probably didn't mention that the physician must meet with the patient by him or herself and just make sure that this is the patient wishing to end his or her life and that he or she is not being coerced. Now, when you say coerced, I understand what you mean by that. But what about the subtleties of the person does not want to be a burden to their families? And so is that subtle coercion because this person is saying, I must end this, my family is just distraught, they're a mess, and I don't want to add to their suffering because I'm really... I'm coming to the end of my life. Is that considered coercion when a doctor is talking to a patient? If they say, I really need to do this because my family is just, they're they're suffering too much. Am I making myself understood? Absolutely. And that is a really tough issue because, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I'd rather not see patients uh, end their lives for that reason, mm-hmm. and that makes many un- many physicians uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see that it's the patient's suffering, not the family's suffering. Mm-hmm. That is the reason. But this is where these laws 
are trying to strike that balance between mm-hmm. patient autonomy to make a decision and protecting vulnerable patients. You've got it it's right at the edge there with what could be coercion, mm-hmm. and the physician has to make that decision. I come down on the side that the patient gets to decide, him or herself, what her reason or his reason is. But, you know, that, that truly is the third rail, as you've described. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's It's very tough because I think close families, those who are very compassionate about perhaps an illness striking someone younger than they anticipated or incapacitating someone who's been healthy their entire lives until now, that's very difficult for a family to adjust to. Is there a timing issue? Can I add one thing there? Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah. So... Another piece of this sort of very difficult balance is Mm -hmm. the following. If you look at the data from Oregon and the other states as to what's the reason patients entered the program, Mm -hmm. um, about 25%, this is when they enter the program, not when they finally decide to end their lives, about 25% is physical pain Mm -hmm. that, these patients, 90% of the patients are in hospice. Mm-hmm. They're getting their pain addressed, but sometimes we just can't handle it as uh, clinicians, and so the patients enter the program. But the vast majority of patients write down that the reason they're in the program, and they can write multiple reasons, is a loss of autonomy and a loss of you know, bodily functions, continence, etc. Now, a loss of dignity, a loss of dignity. And so this is an area where some people will say opponent to this. Well, that shouldn't be a reason why someone can end his or her life. But you got to dig a little deeper. If you care for patients at the ends of their lives, what what lies behind loss of autonomy? It's not, as I described to some, it's not just grandma can't drive to the grocery store. We're talking about patients, typically end stage cancer. Mm-hmm. They may have decubitus ulcers, bed sores. Mm-hmm. They've got nausea and vomiting from their pain medication. They can't sleep. They're incontinent of urine and feces. Mm-hmm. They can't ambulate. They have some altered mental status from their narcotics. They may have uh, had a stroke. This is what we mean by loss of autonomy. And mm-hmm. the, you described the issue of dignity. I'll tell you what I remember when my mother was at the end of her life. She didn't want to see her grandchildren because she didn't want them to remember her in the state she was in, which is most of the things I just described. And that's at a time where I believe that that balance should come out where the, the patient can decide, him or herself, what when it is time to die and where is the appropriate place to die. I don't know if you have the answer to this question, but I was fascinated by the fact that you said of the people who enter the program, one third do not end up taking the medication. Right. And in that case, is that possibly because it is a, a control 
This gives me control if I choose to end my life, and I simply want that choice and autonomy to do so if I want to. If it's more than I can bear, then I intend to use it. But the one-third that don't, is it a choice, or did they become incapacitated and unable to take it? No, almost in all cases, it's as you described the choice. So they go into the program when they know they can qualify, mm-hmm. they've got their full mental capacity, and they know they're soon going to die. And it does give them great comfort to know if the physical pain gets too great or the loss of autonomy gets to the point where they want to end their lives, they can. But I, I'll give you an interesting additional piece of data. Mm-hmm. So there are some patients who despite physicians' best estimates, who live a year or even a year and a half. And all that means is physicians are not infallible, and it looks like um, uh, that they're going to die soon, but they don't. But what that shows, just like you're you, uh, focusing on the statistic that a third don't take the medication, mm-hmm. it shows that patients don't take it until they feel they need to. And it gives them comfort, though, knowing that it's there. Mm-hmm. And think about it. In my One of the reasons I want it in Maryland is there'll be plenty of patients, plenty of individuals who are not sick, who get comfort knowing if they get terminal cancer or another terminal disease, this law is in effect and will help them so they get benefit then. Again, it's a control issue about how you live your life and how you will end your life. And I think that's what makes this a very fascinating and difficult topic to discuss. You know, estate planning is difficult enough. When you add in these kinds of discussions to the mix, you know, you have to hope that families are communicating well at this point, or if someone is alone, that they do have professionals around them that can guide them for what is best for that patient. And that's nothing we can answer. In tr- it wasn't even a question, right. just a commentary on my part, because I, I think it's it's difficult to judge this unless we are in their shoes. You as a physician have seen this firsthand. And we are going on the final break of our show, and we will be back talking further about medical aid in dying and specifically the Maryland end-of-life options program. We'll be right back. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. night, my husband was laughing as he was reading about the differences between men and women. According to the article, men get single tusks or hiccups more often than women. Everyone knows that women are better at multitasking than men. I'm good at both multitasking and procrastinating, which means right now there are 28 things that I'm putting off until later. What's another word for a person who puts everything off until the last minute? A cunctator. Women blink nearly twice as much as men. And while men can read smaller print than women, women can hear better. In fact, when a woman says, what? She heard you. 
She's just giving you a chance to change what you said. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Spring and summer are great times to go green. Choosing to eat green vegetables and fruit on a daily basis is a fantastic idea. Whether it's asparagus, lettuce, spinach, or artichokes, green produce is a wonderful choice full of essential nutrients. Green beans, broccoli, edamame, and avocados are delicious and very nutritious. Cucumbers, peas, and peppers contain lutein, which helps protect against cataracts and macular degeneration. Green fruits like grapes and kiwi not only taste delicious, they're full of antioxidants. Leafy greens are also excellent sources of folate, a B vitamin that helps reduce the risk of birth defects and helps keep our hearts healthy. So next time you're grocery shopping, choose fresh green vegetables and fruit and go green. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Welcome back. On the break, I wish you could hear some of our discussions on the break. I was asking on the break, and I will ask out here, if you apply to this program and yet the family is is just very against even the thought and discussion of it, and you decide, all right, I, I'm not going to upset my family right now for doing this, are you precluded from coming back later on after perhaps people have adjusted to the inevitability of the diagnosis, or, or can you only apply once? No. You can apply again. I mean, and the patient can apply and decide to withdraw, never, never take the medication, mm-hmm. never use the prescription. Everybody in the process is always free to change his or her decision and then to come back again. Not a problem. Okay, because I think that there are adjustments that people go through. I mean, it's the same stages, you know, the denial, the anger, the bargaining, you know, all of those grief pieces. And I think sometimes timing is very important, and it's good to know that these protections are there as well as the options for choice are there. What are some of the things your opponents say? That's a good set of questions. I debate about this all the time. So here's one that always comes up with the physician groups that I speak to. Doesn't this violate the Hippocratic Oath? Mm. So my response is twofold. Threefold, I'll say. First, as modern healthcare practitioners, we should not be seeking guidance from a 2,400-year-old edict, the Hippocratic Oath. But second, I force physicians to go back and look at the Hippocratic Oath. And if you go back and look at the modern translation of the original oath, it starts by saying, first, I swear by Apollo and some other gods. And as you know, we don't do do that. Do no harm. (laughs) All right. So it does say do no harm at one point. But it also says in the very same oath, I will not use the knife. So that would preclude any surgery. It says, I will not cut for stone. Which means mm-hmm. you couldn't go treat uh, with surgery kidney stone. So there mm-hmm. are a number of things in there uh, that just make no sense today. And in my mind, what the Hippocratic oath boils down to is do what's right for the patient. 
and this is right for the patient, and the patient should be able to pursue medical aid and die. Another point sometimes made by opponents, well, this is just Dr. Kevorkian. And many of us remember Dr. Kevorkian. He had developed a device mm-hmm. for lives. Uh, that device required a fair amount of assistance, so it could be viewed more as euthanasia rather than uh, medical aid and dying. Euthanasia is where someone causes the death. Mm-hmm. So it's not the Dr. Kevorkian um, uh, model. Mm-hmm. A third sort of argument we get is about those, say, third of people who do not take their medication at the end, isn't that uh, a situation where there will be abuse of those drugs? And the answer to that is pretty simple. First, most patients don't even fill the prescription unless they're right near death Mm because the prescriptions can be very expensive. Mm -hmm. But um, more importantly, in all the years this program has existed in Oregon and other states, there's never been a single documented case of abuse of medication. It just has never happened. Yeah, that didn't even occur to me. Because if it's anything like uh, family illnesses in our home, it, it, the medications are returned to the pharmacy if they're not used. And it is simply nobody wants to keep reminders of what was there. Does Correct. that make sense? That makes oh. absolute sense. So. Yeah. I, it's very interesting because I think the the things that the objections that I hear in my ears when I am thinking about this topic are more on the faith based ones. Are you getting pushed back from say the Roman Catholic Church or other faith based groups? Yes. Uh faith based groups are amongst the most ardent opponents of this legislation. Mm-hmm. Now interestingly We've done a survey here in Maryland that shows while um, faith-based groups oppose this, what our survey showed was that a majority of individuals, say, who self-describe themselves as Catholic, uh, Christian, Jewish, um, a majority of those people still support the legislation, um, but some of the some individuals in those groups are strong opponents, so we have to deal with that. I, I would think so because I, I think that you know again you're not you're talking about institutions that are age old and they have strong lobbying groups and, and that kind of thing. But what it boils down to, if I'm listening to you correctly and have read the material properly, is this comes down to personal choice. Yes. And choice is for the patient, uh, for how they are going to both live the end of their lives and end their lives. And I wonder if you know this statistic, it may not be collected, but how many go into the program and take care of it without telling the family and simply manage their own departure without letting anybody know anything at all so that it doesn't become a conflict within the family? Well, it's a very small number. It's under 5%. And even of that group, it may be that some of those didn't have family members to inform. So I know that in 90 to 95% of cases, they inform family members. Going back to the the religion, Mm -hmm. faith-based 
issue. Sure. I like to quote Governor Brown from California when he signed the End of Life Option Act in his state a couple of years ago. Now, Governor Brown, at one point in his life, had been training in the seminary, and uh, he later left that and you know, went on to become uh, an important politician in the state of California. But what he said, I, I looked this up as you were mentioning faith-based uh, <laughs> question. He said, in the end, I was, this is the le- in the letter he wrote when he signed the law. In the end, I was left to reflect on what I would want in the face of my own death. I do not want to know what I... I do not know what I would do if I were dying in prolonged and excruciating pain. I am certain, however, that would be a comfort to be able to consider the options afforded by this bill, and I wouldn't deny that right to others. So there was a religious man who made the decision that he wanted to support this bill. Interesting. Because I think that that is something that people struggle with sometimes. Um, we know what we should do. We want, know what we'd like to do. And in this case, if you separate the emotion from the law itself, it is there to give you an option. And I think that's what's, what's very interesting to me as I, I did some more research on this in other states because it is a growing trend and it is to really cover and, and protect patients and physicians and institutions about the choices they make as they enter the end stage of life. Do hospice workers have any opinions on this that you've heard? Uh, most hospice organizations have taken a neutral stand on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you an interesting perspective I have. I've, I've talked with a number of hospice physicians and nurses and care providers. Mm-hmm. And hospice physicians, while personally they may support it, they don't want to do it publicly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't want to be viewed as the physician who that's what he or she does, mm-hmm. you know, ends patients' lives this way. Uh, so sort of a more neutral position is what I've found amongst the organizations and the healthcare providers in that field. That makes sense. It makes yeah. sense because, you know, people, depending on their viewpoint, you know, may, may judge hospice in some way, shape, or form if they are pro or con for either reason. So anything that we have missed in terms of talking about the importance of a patient's choice to self-administer a medication to end their lives at the time they choose, when and where they want, after they have fulfilled these conditions, the chronic condition, the physician coverage, etc. Anything that I've missed in terms of allowing you to get all of this information out there, because I know this is truly a big topic. Yeah. And, you know, anything I've missed, please feel free to share it. And the very little that you've missed. But I'll tell you one, one thing <laughs> I described. So if you look back in uh, what ha- was happening in Oregon at the time they passed the law, there were claims that having such a law would lead to the poor and the uneducated being, you know, we talked about coerced or pushed through this system. And it turns out it's anything but that. We still get these arguments, but let me give you the data. In Oregon, 
of the patients who have gone through the program, 73% attended college, less than, fewer than 6% are on Medicaid, they're not the poor of Oregon, and the net result is very few patients actually go through the program. That's not something we talked about here, Mm -hmm. but it's only originally, you know, 50, 75, now maybe 120 patients a year in Oregon, in a state that has 4 million. The people who go through this program, it's fewer than 0.4% of the deaths in Oregon, fewer than 1.2% of the cancer deaths. So it's very few patients, but they need this, and this kind of program benefits them. This is a fascinating topic, and we could go on and on. I want to make certain, though, that people know where to find out more information in Maryland, and your website is M-D-E-L-O, mdelo.org, MarylandEndOfLifeOptions.org. And there's also some valuable information there about downloading an advanced directive you can fill in and other choices you can make. But, you know, Michael, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Not our usual Thrive topic, but it actually is falling into the Wise Health, helping you to thrive and flourish because these are choices you make in your life. So thank you for sharing the wisdom and your work on this topic with the legislature and appreciate your time this morning. Thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. We'll be back next week with more interesting topics that are very broad in nature, but will help you to flourish after 40. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We'll be back next week with another show and hope that you find more information at wisehealthforwomenradio.com. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.